I'm Gabriel Rucker from Le Pigeon in Portland, Oregon, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be speaking with famous chefs and food authors about their favorite ingredients. We then speak to the producer of that ingredient. We talk about the history, how it's made, and why chefs love using it in their kitchens. Here we go, Andrea, another really amazing episode of Ingredient Insiders. We are talking about one of the most luxurious food products on the planet. I put this ingredient into what I call the holy trinity of luxury. The holy trinity. You got to tell this little Jewish girl what the holy trinity is, John. Well, you know, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In this case, there is truffles, Mm -hmm. caviar, and today's ingredient, which is foie gras. Oh, I love foie gras. To me, just the very mention of it is decadence and luxury. I mean, no other word comes to my mind other than just decadence and luxurious food. And how do you feel about foie gras? Are you a foie gras lover? Oh, yeah. I love it. I think that to me, when I see it on a menu, I get excited. I'm like, ooh, they have foie gras. I know that the chef is somebody who's like-minded. And I typically order it if I see it on a menu, but um, I'm kind of particular on how I like it. Do you like it always or are you open, you know, or do you like it one specific way? I love foie gras just about any which way that a chef wants to prepare, whether it's in a pate or torchon. Probably my favorite thing is just a piece of sliced fresh foie gras that's simply seared in a pan. And then, you know, served with a a sweet condiment of some sort. Yeah, I think I agree. I love a torchon, a mousse, a pâté. Those are absolutely my favorite ways. Sometimes texturally, when you sear the foie lobe, there's something about it. I can't eat a whole lot of it. I don't know if it's just a little too soft for me, but I will schmear any type of torchon, mousse, pâté on a cracker with a beautiful preserve any day. Well, this episode is featuring three incredible people. We've got Chef Gabriel Rucker from Portland, Oregon, who is the chef and owner of Le Pigeon, and as well as Canard Restaurant, which now has two locations just outside of Portland. And we also have Bob Ambrose and Sergio Saravia from La Belle Farms Foie Gras. They're producing some incredible foie gras and other products from these ducks in upstate New York. Yeah, I think it's going to give us an opportunity to learn not only about how foie gras is produced, but also politically, it's a touchy subject right now. So I have a lot of questions for them, and I cannot wait to you know hear all about it, and um, maybe we'll even get to taste some. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. All right, foie gras on Ingredient Insiders. Let's do it, John. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios. Well, we are here in Oregon City today. We're doing a West Coast tour. Andrea and I are New Yorkers, Mm -hmm. but we are out in Oregon, in Oregon City with Gabriel Rucker, who is the chef owner of the very famous and award-winning Pigeon Le Pigeon restaurant, as well as the Le Canard or Canard? Just Canard, yeah. Canard. But you did hit it. I mean, we just call it Pigeon. Pigeon. Okay. So the Pigeon and the Canard, the... The pigeon and the duck. Yep. And you now have two locations of canard. Yep. One in Portland and one here in Mm -hmm. Oregon City. And we were not surprised when you said that you wanted to talk about foie gras. 
Uh, well, it's like you know, like it's a that's like a it's like hey, what ingredient do you want to talk about? That's like such an open ended thing, and I was just like, hey, you know, I I feel like that like I have like that's probably the single ingredient that I have the most identity with. Right. Not it wasn't like something I set out to mm-hmm. to do. I didn't have any sort of like mission statement or thing that I wanted to do, but it just happened. Well, I mean, I read you know a little bit about you um, in preparation and. You know, it seems like the French Laundry Cookbook was something that kind of Big influenced time. you. Yeah. Um, is that where this kind of foie gras love came from or stemmed from? So, well, I mean, I just kind of like found myself at the young age of 25, like in this cute little restaurant taking it over. I didn't like um, start Le Pigeon out as like, hey, I want to start a restaurant out. I didn't like create a business plan and go get funding. What happened was the restaurant that I was working at had collapsed uh, like two months prior. And I was like kind of moonlighting at this other restaurant. And then I got a call that there was a a, a space that needed a chef and Mm -hmm. a restaurant, a, Mm -hmm. a restaurant owner that didn't really have that much experience in owning a restaurant. Because why would someone with a lot of experience hire me at the age of 25 with no experience of being a head chef and I didn't even cook for the guy to be his chef but it's a very cute super small like Le Pigeon is like you know 35 35 seats all copper hood this little you know a chef's counter at that point was a little bit more of a unique experience to have like 10 a 30 year seats it just wraps around this small kitchen with six burners so it was like sure I can handle something that size did you walk into that design because yeah, yeah. it's beautiful yeah I walked into that I mean we've done like things but like the 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 bones you know the copper hood it was all that there. bar yeah it's all there yeah so um so I walked in and um you know I was very heavily influenced by the French Laundry Cookbook at, you know when I was eighteen years old I grew up in Napa and um so uh when I, I my the first time I decided to become a cook and went to Copperfield's Books in Napa the French Laundry Cookbook was just sitting out there and I I dropped fifty bucks on that thing yeah. which as an eighteen year old I mean that was like. You know, that was, that was my like first big, cookbook yeah. too, and I remember it being like super expensive. Yeah, yeah. and I read yeah. it cover to cover, mm-hmm. and then I read it cover to cover again, and like that, I think that really like made me fall in love with like what was possible out there, and so um, being young, twenty five, yeah. and like wanting to carve a name for myself, um, you know, I leaned into that kind of stuff, and really heavily when we first opened the Pigeon, you know. I think any good restaurant goes through like like we do as a, a human, right? We go mm-hmm. through, we change, and we. You don't have to n- not reinvent ourselves, but we go through different identities, mm-hmm. right? Like an evolution. You have, yeah, you have like your teen years, and so I'd say like the opening of La Pigeon was like like the teen years, and I was young and um, kind of trying trying to be like go against the grain, and well, we're gonna serve. You know, we were pushing the boundaries, of, and people were eating it up, and it was like you know, also like people were riding that wave, like the foods food was just blowing up, and Portland was blowing up, and it was just like crazy thing and I was like well what can we serve can we serve people beef lips wrapped in squash blossoms yes we can with monkfish <laughs> yeah let's do it but foie gras was like that as luxury as we got back then because we weren't charging a lot for food and uh, and people just love buying and eating foie gras they and- do let's pull it back for one yeah. sec because we have a lot of young listeners and we, I think most people who listen to ingredient insiders are food lovers or chefs or restaurateurs but Andrew, what is foie gras? Like, what is, you know, what is it? Foie In gras, basic terms, yeah. I mean, it's duck or, or goose liver, but um, it it is fattened. So essentially, um, and, you know, we will get into this a little bit, 
but the the ducks or the geese they are they're fed a, a high amount of corn diet which fattens up their liver and it makes for this extremely rich buttery um delicacy fatty. yes it is a little bit controversial and i think maybe like it's get a it lot out. of bit controversial yeah. i mean let's talk about that i mean it's very controversial it's, very it's like controversial. people it's, it, i don't even know if you can serve it in california yeah it's, it's banned in california it, right now yep but the future of it in the u.s is very much in question which is sad and unfortunate mm-hmm. um for people who love foie gras it's, it, well it's also crazy that the future of foie gras is in question but the future of factory farm chicken is not right. in question. And that's, we can go into that. It's like, a great point. I, if yeah. you, whenever you guys want to yeah. get into that conversation, I, we can I, get there. I think we should talk about that because yeah, there's a lot of things that are going on in the world of food production to Gabe's point, to Gabriel's point, that are totally screwed up and not cool and not good. And yet something that is very tradition. And we should talk about the history of foie gras because as Andrea just mentioned, it's the fattened you know, liver of ducks and goose. If you go back to ancient Egyptian times, that's kind of how this product came to be. And we're, so we're talking about thousands of years of history yeah. where the Egyptians noticed that at a certain time of the year when the geese were getting ready for migration, that their liver, they would they would gorge themselves naturally because they had to take a, you know, hundreds of miles migratory flight. They would feed and feed and feed and feed because they weren't going to eat for weeks, feed and feed and feed. And then if they, they found that if they killed one of those birds at that time to eat, that the livers were really large. So they then real and, and delicious. I'm sure they were, yeah, know, right. doing yeah. great uh, terrines and pâtés in, sure. in ancient Thebes. I wouldn't, I, I mean, they built the pyramid, so I'm sure they exactly. can make an amazing torchon. <laughs> exactly. This is an item that can be used, you know, nose to tail or beak to oh, yeah. tail. You know, rendered duck fat is amazing for cooking potatoes and everything else. Oh, yeah. The breast of the the moular duck, which is used for foie gras production, produces these big, plump, beautiful magret. Yeah. And then the the legs, the legs and thighs are what are used for confit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't take a Peking duck leg or thigh. I mean, I guess you could, but they're very small. Right. They don't lend themselves to exactly. you know, a nice dish. Um, what other parts am I forgetting? The that can neck be used? is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the tongue of the duck is yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the carcasses are used yeah. to make stock. stock yeah. The hearts are a fantastic appetizer or an addition. You know, back yeah. in the olden days, we were doing duck heart, like green bean casserole. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, the, you know, it being a target of um, people who don't want the product to be produced. Listen, I get it on one hand. The idea of force feeding um, is what they call it. The gavage is However, a natural process. Yeah, but to and Gabe's as far, point, you have to feed any animal well, that's in captivity. Let, let's just. Yeah, I, I just want to make one statement. Yep. Like every animal we eat, we kill. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> like, and so the ducks that are being raised for foie gras are on boutique small mm-hmm. farms and are you know free range and are actually taken care of by small like farmers that are hands on farmers that care about these animals. That they do kill, okay, mm-hmm. but um, a- and every piece of the animal is then used, right? Yep. Um, and it's like so many things in this country when we go to fight or to protest, um, it's an easy one because they are not the big business. Yep. It's much easier 
if you want our animal rights, which you have a right to have your opinion, but like it's much easier to go after a foie gras farm than it is to take down foster farms. Mm-hmm. Yep. But which product is doing more harm to the animals, to the environment, and to us as a society, and which company needs more effort put into regulating them and taking them down? Yeah. The small farmer that makes foie gras and you use all the parts of the animal and then probably composts the stuff that they don't use mm-hmm. yeah. or the company that is keeping animals in cages, growing them with hormones. Yep. So let's get back to Portland, mm-hmm. the pigeon, your love of foie gras. How, how are you using yeah, it? How are you using it? What, do you, what are the dishes? I mean, so I, at this point, I, we've done, you know, I would hate to say we've done everything we can with it because we're always coming up with new ideas. What are the traditional uses? The For, classic, I mean, classic uh, uses. So the classic uses of foie gras. Oh, geez, um, you have. I mean, I think, so like just like your textbook classic uses. I think there's what I would call the big three, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to have seared, yep, which is where you take this lobe, what's called a lobe, and there's actually two lobes on a lobe. Um, you have a small lobe and a large lobe. And if we are doing video shots, I actually have some in my walk-in yeah, here. We, we can, can get some. Um, and so you just slice it. And it's uh, it, if it comes to room temperature, it almost has like a butter-like te- texture. So you, you warm a knife up and you slice it. And you sear it in a very hot pan. And it renders out. And it becomes just like melt-in-your-mouth delicacy. Almost like, I mean, this, it, yeah, it's almost like eating a slab of like, seared butter but it's delicious um so that's we're all starting to salivate that's a great way to serve it and then you have uh, a torsion which is like a cylindrical round shape uh torsion translates like in the dish towel um and that's where you would there's a couple ways to get to a torsion but that's where you would um take the veins out of the foie gras clean it up uh usually you would season it for a period of time at least 24 hours with like uh i like to do a mixture of salt sugar and a uh, some sort of alcohol like a cognac would be traditional um, or a sauterne. Uh, you can get crazy and do some grappa, you, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you let that foie gras kind of come to room temperature and you form it because it becomes, at that point, it becomes like duck Play-Doh and, and you wrap it in this dish towel. And then the, the most traditional way to do that would then be to poach that or you wrap it in cheesecloth, really. And then you poach that in a flavorful like a court bouillon or a broth bring it out, ice water, then you wrap it in a dish towel, you hang it to cure in the walk-in, and then you unwrap it, and you have this nice cylindrical log of cured, lightly poached, flavored uh, foie gras. Mm-hmm. And um, you can go with a salt cure for a longer period of time on that as well, so you don't actually have to do the poaching. Um, and then the uh, the third of the big three, as I would um, consider it, is the terrine, uh, where you kind of go through a similar process um, with the cleaning, the curing, and then rather than the cylindrical uh, technique, what you do is you f- push it into a terrine mold and you either bake it in a water bath or, you know, because we're a modern kitchen, we cook it sous vide and mm-hmm. we end up with a nicer, uh, more uniform yield there. Uh, and then the lesser known of the the fourth shooter on the grassy hill of the big three <laughs> is the uh the ice cream which is what we're most known for probably um and we can i'm sure you if you've done your research on me you know that we are very well known for a uh, foie gras profiterole dessert mm-hmm, with sure. foie gras yeah. ice cream and um so why i've not? had it it's to die for 
if something Why? came on the menu in 2006, was that there in the early um, days? You know, I'm pretty fuzzy with timelines. I was 25 and having a good time. Uh, That's yeah, how the idea I came. I think it did come on the menu. It's kind of gone through some evolutions, but I can tell you the story of the foie gras profiterole Please. if you yeah. want, as far as I remember it. Uh, so You ran out of ice cream. We, <laughs> well, we were... We were, um, like I said, we were young. We were thought we were edgy. We were like, hey, we're these punk rock cooking kids. And um, we had done a dessert uh, that was a honey, bacon, and apricot cornbread with uh, maple ice cream, warm bacon bits, and uh, drizzled with maple syrup. And it was really good. We'd warm this cornbread up, and then we'd put this big chunk of maple ice cream on it, and we would top it with warm, buttery uh, bacon bits and maple syrup. And that was like doing the sweet and savory thing. And so we were like, okay, meat dessert. You know, at that point, that was like kind of like right before that crazy bacon wave, you know, where mm-hmm. there's like bacon scratch and stick, stiff stickers on everything. And it was like, <laughs> oh, a meat dessert. Okay. You know, so it's like you push a little bit and you're like, well, we can probably push a little bit more. And then it was like, well, foie gras is very successful dish when served with a, a sweet component because mm-hmm. of the richness of it. I would say like a extremely classic way to like, eat like a, a torchon or a terrine would be like a slice of that toasted brioche bread maybe some like poached figs maybe like uh, a chutney of berries or you know it's, a, it's a, you don't need to do too much you know we do stuff in the it restaurant but a little bit like of fruit sweet. a little yes. bit of sweet yep. a little bit of like you know toasty buttery bread and then yeah. the, the, the some and then great flake salt yeah um uh, and, and that's all you need where does the moolar duck figure into the menu now at Canard or a pigeon? Are you doing confits? Are you doing yep. so duck I, fat? I, canard, doing- uh, I mean, so the, the actual duck itself, so always foie gras on the menu, always duck fat being used. <coughs> At Canard, we grind duck and make uh, duck gravy. We, do, we have what's called a duck stack, which is um, duck fat pancakes with uh, duck sausage gravy, a duck egg. And then, of course, if you want, you can add a seared foie gras to that uh, smoked maple syrup. <laughs> That's a breakfast, lunch, dinner, yeah. talk dirty to oh, me God, deal. It's, it's really heavenly. Oh, sorry. It's really. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's messed up, but it's great. I mean, it sounds incredible. So I we, love yeah, we the do, thought process behind yeah. all these dishes. Lots of, yeah. I mean, if your restaurant's called Canard, we you, do lots yeah. of stuff do, with duck. Do, uh, let's t- take a step back. Did you go to culinary school? Did you just start in restaurants because you have this amazing, just to hear the process, like what's going through brain, your, your yeah. brain. <laughs> um, wh- where did this all start? So, uh, I, um, didn't, I, I kind of went to culinary school. I grew up in Napa. So obviously like, and I didn't, my, my, my dad's a welder and my mom's a fourth grade teacher. So it wasn't like they were like, you know, vinters. Um, and, uh, but I was, you know, you can't grow up in Napa and not be aware of food and wine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I went to right out of high school. I went just right close to Santa Rosa yep. to the junior college. I was like, you know, going to go to college, but that was close. And I was not like I didn't wasn't on the trajectory for a university. Mm-hmm. And I went to my first couple of days of junior college and realized I wasn't on the trajectory for a junior college either. Uh, and so I went and talked to a counselor and they just said that I should probably pick something vocational oriented. And in uh, high school, I had had this really great experience, like working at this like very, very cool bagel shop that I just fell in love with. The owners were great. I got to make bagels. I got to like, you know, like actually make the bagels. Um, 
I got, it was just a great experience working in food, like, you know, making the sandwiches. And it was just like mm-hmm. the, the community around like this, like food service thing and this tight knit. And so I, I just, know some great chefs that have come out of bagel shops. You're not yeah. the first one to say so that. I, so that, I love my that finger idea. at, the, at the, the, the cooking class there. Yep. Uh, called my parents. And it was really, it was a, it was a pre-algebra class that spurned me on to go talk yeah. to this counselor. Called I my parents that. up and was like, hey, I, I'm changing course, you know, I'm, I'm going to take, I'm going to become a chef. And I think that they were just so relieved that I like had a plan that I was going to do something. Mm-hmm. Nice. It was definitely before, this was in 2000. So it was like before like the Food Network was really going yep. and it was like, it wasn't like, it was like it was cool. It wasn't necessarily chef, but cool it wasn't like, you right. know, and they were, I think that they were just so pleased that I like said I was going to do something that was like going to, the, there was a linear point A to point B type thing. And so I took, I enrolled in the, the class and um, I, it was a two year class and I, I went through the first year and like things started to click for me as a young mm-hmm. kid. I was like, I think for the first time, like as an 18 year old kid, like felt like I had something going and um, like adults respected what I wanted to do. Um, and it made sense to me. Uh, like food started to make, I didn't never, mm-hmm. I never really knew, but like it started to make sense for me. Um, I, I wasn't good at like, you know, I wrote a bad report on croissants, which I still have somewhere, you know, I was not good at like the academia part of it, but like the food made sense to me. And it was really exciting because I was excited about it. Mm-hmm. I had read the French Laundry Cookbook. I knew that there was this world out there because I lived in Napa. So it you was, found your thing. It, yeah, I found my thing. Yeah. And, you know, um, the way that I, the analogy I like to use about food for, you know, we, we all have a thing out there. I think yeah. we all have a thing. And it takes searching, finding, and then an incredible amount of luck mm-hmm. for us to get our thing. And, you know, um, but I found my thing. Food made sense. That's yeah. great. And then I'll also add a note, if I'm correct, in 2007, you got that Food and Wine I Best did. Chefs. Yes. Which is a great honor. Yes. It was what was amazing. that moment like? Well, so it was, well, it was, I mean, I mean, besides like incredible, things were happening really fast and crazy. And mm-hmm. like, you know, we opened in 2006 and like it was, there wasn't this plan, right? It was mm-hmm. just this thing we opened. I was like, took over this job as a, at this restaurant, and, you know, uh, people in Portland were recognizing us. I had no idea. I, I didn't even really know about the Beard Awards mm-hmm. at that point. Did you wait? Did mom and da- you're on the cover of Food and Wine magazine in 2007. Mom and dad must have been like they yeah, yeah freaking out. Yeah, they were excited. Yeah, I think so. They still have like I think they they I give them my memorabilia. I love it. They have I'm it sure they're very at their, proud at their house. Um, but yeah, so I got uh, a call. I actually was at that restaurant at like 9 a.m. and I got a call from Gail, like hey is Gabriel in? I was like, that's me. And I think she was like, why in the hell are you answering the phone at 9am at your restaurant? But yeah. And then she was like, I just want to let you know, I'm so glad I answered the phone. Right. Because at that point we didn't have any sort of reservation system or anything. And, and, and I wanted the business. So anybody that would call, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come, come. Um, and so she's like, Hey, I just want to let you know you've been nominated. And I just was like, like there, it wasn't like, I wasn't in the position where I was like, oh, that kind of comes out at the, around this time every year. Right. So maybe I'll get it. It was just like, You were what? not expecting I, that phone call. It was call. like left field mm-hmm. and beyond at that point. And, you know, it, I'd love to talk about that for a little bit, too, because the Food and Wine Best New Chefs, the alumni of that is incredible. If you go back to the 1990s, the early mid 1990s, I'm not sure exactly when they started doing it. It is 
you know, the people that we all kind of look up to as the legends or Hall of Famers of cooking in the United States won that award and they're on the cover of the magazine. Um, sadly, magazines are not as popular as they once were because of all the digital stuff going on. I don't know. Is it still happening? Like, I they I think they must be announcing them every year. I don't know yeah, if you yeah. go back to Aspen as like an alumni or anything you like know, that. You know, I actually haven't just because it's hard to, to yeah. do. But I think, I do think that I was very, and my wife likes to bring this up, that very, very lucky, like timing, luck, you know, I kind of was at the right age, the right time for the golden age of like when everybody cared about yes. You didn't have to be a foodie to to be aware of, who it was, was a who's big who in thing. restaurants, yeah. you know. Yeah. We is, talk about the golden age of restaurants a lot, and I think there are like kind of different eras, or maybe like yeah, there's I, kind of like the renaissance. Like John will talk about um like the time, you know, I'm gonna say maybe the eighties. Well, New York City. I mean, I think right. I think it's different for different places. Yeah. And there was a California Renaissance for mm-hmm. sure when, you know, Wolfgang Puck started cooking sure. and, and uh Jonathan Waxman, you know, took over Michaels and stuff like that. And I think Portland you know, kind of evolved with that. And Portland, I don't know. Do you have? Do you consider? I think two thousand. I think you were part of that mo- moment Absolutely. right there in oh, the yeah. mid two thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, was, but I mean, Portland was like the hip. I mean, like New York Times was coming to write about Portland. Yeah. And, uh, my buddy Kevin Alexander actually wrote like the book. It's called Burn the Ice, where he he talks about like the restaurant bubble and like Portland being like kind of this epicenter of like this. You know, for that early two thousands thing yeah. and it keeps going, going yeah. because you know i think we, andrea and i are huge pizza aficionados is that the right word yeah. pizza, lovers, pizza lovers whatever yeah. pizza freaks have you had pizza here yet i have had uh so pizza i've had shoals mm-hmm. amazing yeah. incredible um ken forkish was a, is a good yeah. friend um so i'd had ken's artisan pizza Although I hear you moved to Hawaii so, now. So did Vito and from Paley's. They both are in Hawaii. Yeah. Smart. Good so I, but I and then, to, <laughs> go ahead. I, I have to tell you. So I, 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 literally, I literally had a pizza that made my eyes roll back in my head last night. Okay. Where? Talk to I us. am not like, I like, I, you can't get good pizza out where I live in Milwaukee. Like, well, no, that's not true. There's a place Milwaukee, called, Oregon. Yeah. There's a place called mm-hmm. the Milwaukee pizza Thank you for company that I discovered. John. But um, right across the street from La Pigeon is a place called Demos a Pizza. Okay. And it's like Connecticut style. Yeah. And um, so I, my wife called me and she was, you know, doing sports pickups, drops off and stuff like that. And she could, I'm going to rush home and make dinner. I said, well, let me just bring a pizza home for dinner, which we don't do that often. And um, I walked over to Demo. They're, you know, they're my neighbors and mm-hmm. I know the pizza is good, but like I got a half cheese, half pepperoni. Um, and was I was like, okay, it's like literally like the pizza's riding shotgun. And I was like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. And then I was like, but like, there's definitely enough. So I put a, I grabbed a slice of pepperoni and I ate it. And it was like, it might be the most perfect slice of pizza I've ever had wow. in my life. Like, that's a big statement. I know. But like, a lot of things now we can talk about how much, like, how, like, time and place yes. is so important in an experience when it comes to food. And that we we don't always have control over that, but like that's when when we build a restaurant, creating time and place when you walk into it, and so much more goes into it than just a really great cocktail and a really mm-hmm. great plate of food. Um, but last night, time and place for me was listening to Thursday night football on my way home, having the slice of pizza, and I literally was like, it was the biggest food moment that I can like recall. It wow. Was just, and it's across the street from, it's across from pigeon. Yeah. Like we I should get I, it for lunch, John. Yeah. Why not? Like I yeah. really want to 
get another pizza. We'll come have lunch with yeah, us. Yeah, I should. think we're going to do that. This is my question. You got it. Of the podcast. You have kids? Yep, three of them. When he's not bringing pizza when back home. home. Yeah. In the car? Yeah. What are the five pantry staples you have to have in your home? Five pantry staples that I have to have in my home. Okay. Uh, iceberg lettuce. Okay. Ranch powder. Okay. Is this for for my kids? No, or just well, in for general? you. In your in that the kitchen. That, like, in you, your home. That you need. No, these are perfect answers. Well, I mean, uh, don't stop. I <laughs> love where this yeah, is going. Because like I have both of these salad. in my house almost at all times. Ranch time powder, um, iceberg lettuce, um, a good balsamic vinegar, like a, um, like an aged, like a mm-hmm. like a finishing balsamic yep. vinegar, like something syrupy. Yeah, because like I mean, a perfect dinner for my wife and I is like steak and like tomatoes and mm-hmm. like with some iceberg, you know. Um, you're validating me right now because I love iceberg. Keep going. Um, I just picturing wedge salad. Co- cookies and cream ice cream in the freezer. Is there a brand on that? Uh, well, I'm an Oregonian, so I'm going to go Tillamook because it's okay. really okay. good. Okay. Um, Got it. Um, and then let's see. What is my last one going to be? Have to have it. Pantry, not an ingredient, like a pantry. I guess I'm anything. giving you it could be anything, anything in you that, want. Anything I, in the I need kitchen. bananas on the counter because I have a banana. That's how I start my day. Is banana... Uh, I love it. It's like beautiful, unique pantry. Well, well thank you so much. Thanks this again, is Gabriel. Yeah, it's hey, been an awesome conversation. Have a nice drive out to the coast. Say hi to my yeah. friend Ben. And Well, this is going to be a very great conversation, Andrea. I'm so excited because we're going to be talking about the most delicious food. Is it the most delicious food on the planet? I think it's up there, the top five most delicious foods on the planet. It's so deliciously decadent and wonderful. Look so, what they did for us here. I know. that We've got this beautiful spread in front of us with pâtés and foie gras and Torchon. duck prosciutto and duck pastrami even maybe. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So we are here today at La Belle Farms Foie Gras with the two owners, Bob Ambrose and Sergio Saravia. Am I saying that right? All right, awesome. Um, but thanks for having us here to to talk today, guys. Thank you for coming. Can you tell us a little bit about LaBelle Farm, how it started, the history of the company? LaBelle Farms, it actually started around 99, the end of 99, 2000. My brothers started a small coop behind one of the farms, and they started with a few ducks, and then they started developing more and more. Our experiences began way before that because we immigrated here from El Salvador during the Civil War. And when we came, we actually worked for our now, was our competitor at the time, Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. And then we started our own when they sold their company and then bought it back. So now we're actually working together and we formed the Catkills for Collective or Cooperative. And we work together with the people that we started with over there. But in 2000 is when we started LaBelle ourselves, and we did that. And you guys are making and growing more than just foie gras. We grow everything from foie gras to quails to silkies, anything that... You ever seen a silky chicken, Andrea? I have seen a silky chicken. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Black birds? Mm -hmm. Black feathers? Yes. Um, So how is, you know, what do people do with foie gras? Um, years ago, foie gras was always in the U.S. Always, most American chefs would use it in a seared dish. 
where in Europe, always slow cooking methods, terrines and such like that, mousses. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the chefs from the U.S. always preferred the seared. Now, in all over the world, you see both renditions. You see the foie gras tochon, which is a version basically of a terrine where it's slow cooked. You see people searing it. You see people using um, it in a, as ingredient in other dishes to elevate other dishes. In Chinese wedding banquets, you see it used in foie gras fried rice. Mm. I mean, risotto and Italian dishes, stuffings. I feel like I've had dumplings stuffed oh, in yeah. foie dumplings. gras. Dumplings, yeah. There's Yum. a famous chef in the Boston area that used to do a foie gras shumai for years. Nice. With signature dish at the uh, at his restaurant. And so, again, I always think of France when I think of foie gras, but, and I think of the United States too, you know. I think of the Hudson Valley. Yeah, Sergio, you mentioned Hudson Valley foie gras as kind of being one of the first farms in the U.S. to start producing the product. Um, and then in the late 90s, LaBelle was, was born. Um, who else, who, who's producing foie gras in the United States? Is it just you these days? We're the only two. Yeah. And uh, there's smaller ones that don't produce much, a couple hundred maybe, mm -hmm. but they, they don't, because when we set up the cooperative, we had to reach out to everybody in the United States and we're the only two. So our cooperatives were made up of only us. So tell us a little bit about if you were to be purchasing foie gras. So, you know, at Chef's Warehouse, we sell, um, we sell the lobes and we have, there's A, there's B grading. Um, there, you can buy it in little pieces, you know, tell us a little bit about what that grading means and what people should be looking for when they're buying foie gras. So at LaBelle, we do the foie gras grade A. So the group, the foie gras grade A is the top of the line. It's what all the chefs are basically looking for. The grader at LaBelle has been there for 18 years. She's First thing they look at is size, bruising, firmness of the liver. We do grade A, grade B, and grade C. So it's not USDA. It's a subjective grading. But like I said, um, Eddie's been there for 18 years. She's very good. Uh, when our foie gras goes up against anything out there, when they say, when they look at our B, they'll say, well, that's somebody else's A. Um, again, Bruising, size, and texture or firmness. And is that a result of the way that you guys grow out the birds? Exactly. I mean, years ago when we first started, to run 50% A's was the best production you can have. For the last 10 years, we've been running 75, 80% A's, wow. almost no seed production. And what that does is the, the processors that make the pâtés... That's what they look for that are making the mousses. So in turn, we don't do business with them as much as we used to 15 years ago. Are consumers in the United States buying fresh foie gras and was ever no. bringing home from the store? Right. Um, also because of the time, you know, I don't think the farms existed then. But is today somewhat thing where you can go to the supermarket and find foie gras and take it home and cook it? To find foie gras in a supermarket, I won't say it's in every supermarket. Sure. I mean, COVID showed us that. Uh -huh. You know, the first thing people were running to the store to get was not foie gras. Right. Um, but we have a loyal following and always new people online where we ship foie gras all over the country. 
we do business all over the world, but direct shipping to the end user, we do all over the United States, you know, California, pretty much every state. We have regular customers and always new. Mm -hmm. Yes, people always call and say, well, how do I prepare this if they don't know? I mean, foie gras is part of that holy trinity of luxury foods. It's foie gras, caviar, and truffles, all three things very near and dear to me um, are kind of, are, you know, they're at that level of just super luxury status. What makes foie gras so luxurious? Why do people think of it as the luxury food? And do you guys think of it that way or you think of it, this is something that, you know, everybody should be eating? Well, we we definitely think everybody should be eating it. Um, part of the reason is that it's not easy to produce. If it was easy to produce, there'd be more than two of us in the United States. Good point. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of time, a lot of money, and you have to be good at what you do and consistent. Let, let's talk about that yeah. production. What it, what, how is, I think people have a, a rough idea of how foie gras is produced. Andrea was alluding to it earlier. There's a little bit of controversy around the production. How, how is foie gras made? And is it ducks or is it geese? Um, Years ago, as I explained in Egypt, that was geese. Mm -hmm. um, geese are very ill-tempered, ornery. So to produce foie gras on any kind of large production level using geese, difficult. They're not friendly. Not friendly. D more disease prone <laughs> as well. They beat you. They, they, <laughs> they'll try to bite you. Don't they like geese attack, yeah. right? Yeah. Bruises. You, yeah. You got my bruise like you were in a fight. <laughs> I was once attacked by a swan, but that's a whole mm. other story. <laughs> I think I'd pay to see that. Yeah. I think yeah. The consumers and chefs should be informed and they should be proud. Listen, I because I know the details of the production, I love foie gras. I am happy to eat it. I am a proud Absolutely. supporter of foie gras. Mm -hmm. And you know, and and it, I think the chefs also who are well informed have no issue putting this on their menu and serving it because they know that this is a, a product that is made with the utmost care for the animal and it's a lot more than again than mm -hmm. you can say about a lot of large commercial farms that yeah. you know commodity farms that don't care about the animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it's gotten a bad rap in the press. I mean, you're talking about your brother, like looking at each individual bird. I mean, that doesn't, to John's point, that doesn't happen. If you go to a poultry farm, um, it's not something that I don't think anybody would really want to see. And I'm sure you would agree with me in that. And yeah. that, um, I think the media has done some work on it, but there's still a lot of uh, work to be done uh, to discuss husbandry when it comes to poultry. So I agree with John 100% that, you know, you're opening your doors to the media, you're opening your doors to us to, to show us what beautiful um, products you're making. And, you know, we support you. Let's talk you. about not just the fresh foie gras and the whole lobes that you were describing. So you guys make a range of products beyond that with with those products. And then it's almost like you're nose to tail. You're, you're using all parts of the duck once it's processed. Right. We utilize every part of the duck from the feathers, the fat, the feet. Everything gets utilized. Mm -hmm. You know, the easy ones from the duck, the magray. Only the breasts of a foie gras duck can be called magray. Mm-hmm. Gray is an easy one. You, and those you are those big, mm -hmm. beautiful big, with a big fat yeah, cap on it. double lobe, about yeah. a kilo. And a great price, too. We sell, at Chef's Warehouse, we sell a ton of magret. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. we love the Bell Farms magret. Right. Eats like New York Strip. 
Yep. The big thing is cooking it correctly. To render that fat. Right. I've spent a lot of time in South America training chefs because years ago they didn't know what the real, they were selling, they were bringing in duck that was being called Magray, but it was not Magray. So when I brought Magray, they said, well, how do I cook it? It's so big. So showing them how to cook it slowly, how to let it rest, how to slice it on the bias. It eats like the richest New York strip you want to eat. Couldn't agree more. So, so the breast is easy. You, breast is perfect for curing, perfect for making duck prosciutto, smoking, making pastrami. The legs, the, the preferred legs for confit are the legs from the moulard duck. The size mm -hmm. is great. The meat to bone ratio, perfect. And the liver puts so much flavor into all the meat, the skin, the meat, and then also the, 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 all the skin, the fat. Rendered duck fat, number one product we produce here, weight-wise. We produce so much rendered duck fat. Great here. for cooking mm -hmm. potatoes yeah. and oh, So good. Alabama, French fries whatever, with duck you fat. You name it. Yeah. Get it. Are you doing riettes? Uh, yes, we are doing riettes. Are, so are you using the, the we backs use, we the do necks? We do necks, yeah, okay. we do necks. Um, we make a couple other products uh, that you take with, uh, with the necks as well. So, yeah, at, at Chef's Web, I mean, meat. I'm thinking as we start to talk about all these products. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we sell the fresh foie gras. Mm -hmm. We sell, of course, the Magray Bruss. We sell, and another product I think is, I don't know, it's not underrated. underrated. I'm a sucker for a great duck leg confit. You guys sell the like six packs of the raw legs, but then you also make the confit yourself ready to Correct. go, which to me, I'm, just, you know, heat and serve kind of thing. It's so good. And that's something, especially in today's climate where time and labor in the kitchen are at a premium. This is an item where if, you know, if you're a chef and you're listening to this and you're doing a salad or you just want to do an, you know, an, an entree portion of like a duck lake confit, this, there's nothing to be ashamed of with heat and serve this product. And Absolutely. Crisp it up. I am. I, I absolutely love that product. And I will say all these products, I mean, the duck legs, we sell six legs to a pack, but everything else is sold by the piece. The duck prosciutto, all of the pâtés, the smoked duck breast. So um, for, you know, for chefs that, um, you know, don't have a lot of space, we make it really, really easy to buy all of these products. So, right. And we I, found out that, you know, in the last year and a half, that, like you mentioned about the labor, the ready-to-eat market has exploded. Food service. Yeah. Food mm -hmm. service. So. Fantastic. What is your favorite way to eat foie gras, John? Uh, just straight up seared in a pan. Okay. Yep, with a little bit of some sort of acidic fruit Was it like a fruit element? Yeah, but something with acidity. Okay. Even like a little bit of balsamic vinegar. What about you, Bob? I like acidic and spice. Okay. You get so used to the sweet aspect of it after doing this for 18 years. It's foie gras every night. Yeah, uh, I mean... You know, you, you look for different ways to uh, uh, to enjoy it. When you say spice, do you mean like heat, or do you yeah, mean little, like uh, like a spice blend? Yeah, like a, a good spice blend. Not okay. not always just heat, but flavored. You know, cinnamon like, like, and yeah. like very warm yeah. flavored. Okay, I like that as well. Yeah, right. going around magre. Okay, I'm a stick with magre. It's actually been the best thing for me because I, after law school, I got diabetes really bad. And eating the protein from the ducks and the chickens that we produce actually helped me control all that. So all the meat, the legs and all that, blessing for me. 
Oh, that's great. And I know hear. what's in it because yeah. when unfortunately when you do buy it from the supermarket, you don't know what that poultry has eaten. Mm-hmm. And being that we raise our own, we do our own corn, we do all that. So no antibiotics, no, no hormones, no. Just a super clean natural product. Andrew, what's your favorite way to have a foie gras? So I love it in like a pate form. Yes, yes. Um, with I mean with truffle. Ooh. I love a foie gras truffle. Mousse, pate. I love, I mean, I'm staring at these riettes and I don't want to smear it all over that bread. Wow. I don't want it like dripping down my face. Very That's, nice. And duck prosciutto. I mean, you know how I love. You love all your prosciutto. All my prosciuttos. Let's talk a little bit about the diet of the birds um, and, and, and really get into some details about, again, how they're grown. We talked about how they're fed, but what are they actually fed? Well, the feed has, like like I mentioned before, we grow our own corn. The majority mm-hmm. of their diet is is that, corn. Mm-hmm. And then you have some soy, soy meal, but the majority is corn, and that's why we like to grow our own. And that just shows the, the whole process together because the manure that we produce, we're actually under CAFO, which is the Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations for New York State, and we have to follow certain guidelines for what we do with that manure. So our farmers use our manure as fertilizer, and then that's what helps us grow the corn that we grow. And we actually grow the best corn in Sullivan County because of the way that we do it. So it's really regenerative, regenerative agriculture. You're growing the feed. You're feeding the animals. You're using from beak to tail. And then even the byproduct, the manure, you're using that to fertilize your own farms. That's pretty incredible. And even it's something that we started doing when we formed the cooperatives, we use the carcass now too. We work together with uh, Hudson and we have, have them make it so that it's dog food. Ah. So any pet food actually. But it's it's amazing how much you can get out of that duck. And that's what, when you see someone saying, you know, it's just foie gras. It's not just foie gras. It's a huge thing. I mean, when you take it from just the farming, the community, between us, we have a clinic. Uh, Hudson Valley does a clinic. We did a self-help group in in Sullivan County mm-hmm. for anyone with this, any sort of addiction, and we helped. We're such a big part of the community. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you're providing jobs in a community and in an area, you know, in upstate New York, which is not having the best, you know, time with the labor market and yeah. with the, just the economic structure there. So there's so much positive here. I think it's very short-sighted mm-hmm. when you know. Individuals just say foie gras, really without knowing what's going into it to say it's not a good thing. It is a really positive thing on every level. I came into this with a lot of questions and, um, you know, I've learned a lot and I hope that people listening have their their eyes have been opened. Yeah. Go out and eat some foie gras tonight. Damn it. I'm going to crush this board in front of us, John. I don't know about you, but. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been really amazing been a big time long lover of this product mm-hmm. and now I feel even better about it. But I have one more question here Andrea because I've known Bob Bob we've known each other a very long time since the 1990s. And I was listening to a chef in Boston, Ken Oranger, mm-hmm. very famous chef, yeah. and he said you need to talk to Chief when, you know, about something and I'm like who's Chief? He goes, "You know Chief, Bob Ambrose is the chief." How did you become the chief, yeah. Bob? It's a long story from college. Oh, we got plenty of time. <laughs> we have three more minutes, Bob. <laughs> but uh, thanks again, guys. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you. Chief, Sergio. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you Cheers. very much. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed on today's episode at chefswarehouse.com or at your favorite specialty retailer.